Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, page 816 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. As always, we're going to read the Bible, and then we're going to seek the help that we, we know that we need from God through prayer in Christ's name. Just two verses this morning, verses 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word and may he grant us understanding and, and application in it. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the great privilege of public worship. We bow down now to your authority and to your majesty. Uh, You know our hearts. And as we live day by day in a a real world, we want to have a faith which is real and which is useful and increasingly uh, useful to your glory. Therefore, we ask as we turn to your word this morning that you will teach us from it. We admit that we can be so easily distracted by the uh, routines of life and the cares of this world, therein neglecting your will. So, Father, since uh, we are dearly loved, since, Father, we are completely forgiven, and since you crown us with a glory which we do not deserve, make this book live in us, please, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Never stop. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. Those were the words of Kevin Costner. He was playing uh, Elliot Ness in the movie Untouchables. Um, The scene was great, right? Courtroom scene. The gangster Al Capone was finally being tried in open court. Uh, His days were being numbered. The judge presiding over the case had had the jury from another courtroom. He placed the jury in his courtroom after discovering a couple of things, one of which was that his jury had been compromised. And at that moment, the jurors being replaced, everybody understands what's happening. And Al Capone's lawyer in the movie changes the plea from uh, not guilty to guilty. And at that point, uh, the end is near for Mr. Capone's reign of uh, terror in the city of Chicago. So Elliot Ness, he makes his way through the crowds. He puts himself as near as he can to Al Capone. And he says with uh, that boyish Kevin Costner charm, never stop. Never stop fighting until the fight is done. It's classic. The good guy won, right? The bad guy lost. And although the the scene didn't happen, the way that uh, the movie portrayed it, um, the story itself is very real. And the sentence captures in about one line the, the essence of what took place. An evil man who did evil things in a community which was kind of getting used to it. Right? In some circles, uh, Al Capone was a folk hero. People liked him. But, but Mr. Ness was a good man. And, and frankly, when you read about him, he's a pretty ordinary man. But he was an ordinary man willing to do his duty. So as called to Chicago, he did what he was supposed to. And he stopped all that nonsense. And he did it. Okay, how did he do it? Well, he did the basics well. I mean, if you read the story, good old-fashioned police work, good old-fashioned teamwork, good basic conduct. Uh, Capone's men would try to bribe Mr. Ness over and over again. And, you know, other law enforcement agents had been easily bribed. So, so why not Ness? No, this is basic. Men, good men, they don't take bribes. 
personal cost to himself and his family, death threats, close calls, uh, intimidation techniques. So still, Elliot Ness holds the line, courage in the face of mass opposition, uh, the basics, right? the rule of law, and I'm going to do my duty. I have a job to do, and I'm going to do it. Never stop. <laughs> Never stop fighting until the fight is done. Now, I think you could say with a, with a relative degree of ease that uh, that's much of what Paul is saying in these five uh, imperative or command statements that are given in verses 13 and 14 to the church in Corinth. And this was a church that needed to hear it. The whole church needed to hear it because these words were not just, you know, for the super elite Christian, whatever that is. This was for the whole church. And as you know, the church had found it so easily to give in to almost every spiritual vice. There was disunity in the church, disharmony in the church, worldliness, uh, horrible theology, judgmentalism all marked the church. They were overly concerned about their personal rights. They misused their Christian freedoms. And they were making a hash out of their worship services and their communion services. They were self-focused and they were self-indulgent. And the, and the byproduct of being self-focused and self-indulgent in the church will always lead to a lack of concern for the honor of Christ's name. And it will always lead to a lack of concern for the well-being of others. In essence, the church had stopped doing the basics well. What they said they believed wasn't showing up in their behavior. They stopped fighting the good fight of faith. Therefore, Paul tells them here at the end of his letter, in essence, never stop, guys. Never stop fighting until the fight is done. And loved ones, it, it is imperative. If we're going to be useful as believers to our master, if we are going to not uh, call our conversion into question, then we need to do these basics well. Now, don't be confused here. Paul's not looking for supermen and superwomen in the church. That's too much our day. And frankly, that was the problem in Corinth. Everyone, in, everyone wanted to outdo each other, right? To stand out, to, to be the one, to be the spiritual one. As such, they were lacking such a self-awareness with their own sin that they found it so easy to make judgments on the sins of others. So, you see, God's just looking for ordinary, humble people who can do the basics well. Humble people who approach life knowing that they are, giving a, they are given a righteousness that they can never earn. And then they respond to that gift as they should. Okay, so how do we do the basics well? Well, as we go to our Bibles, what we're going to see is these five imperatives, these five commands They'll help set us on our way. First of all, you can see that if your Bible is open, verse 13, be on your guard. Four words in English, one word in Greek. Stay awake. Stay alert. Avoid carelessness. Avoid indifference. Care. Be on guard. Came across a story on the Queen's Guard in England. These are the folks who, um, they wear the tall black furry hats, red coats, they have a blank face, right? They, they stare straight ahead and, and, and they're guards. And they guard the queen and they guard her palace, Buckingham Palace. And anyone seeing them, at least on the surface, could make the assumption, wow, these guys, these guards can really guard. But on the, at least on the surface. Because there was a time not too long ago, the queen awoke in the middle of the night and she found, she found a guy sitting on the edge of her bed. 
And it wasn't her husband. Somehow this man got past the guard, walked around the property, then went into the palace, walked around, found the queen's bedroom, and he was sitting on the bed's edge. Was, he was hoping for a chat with the queen. She didn't give him one. And all of that points to the fact that while at least by appearance, it appeared that the guards had this guarding thing down pat, however, point of fact, there were clearly some problems. Now stay with me because the application is pretty plain. It is so easy to make our lives look really good on the outside. I mean, that's easy. Clean, neat, smart, conversations filled with a few hallelujahs and Jesus and bless the Lord, right? Nice and shiny life, nice and shiny kids, all, everybody's all shined up. While on the inside, our security system is powerless and all hell is breaking loose. Let me just give you an example. We do believe Jesus when he said, if you hate people and, you, and you're trying to hide it on the inside, that to Jesus, it's just like murdering people. Be on your guard. 22 times this word is repeated in the New Testament. Obviously then, we need to pay attention to this. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be on your guard, same word, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, remember him, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Do you think Peter knew a little something about letting his guard down? Jesus to his disciples, be on your guard. Same word, Mark 14, 38, and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Stay awake, says Jesus. Be alert or you'll be caught off guard. And of course, the disciples failed Jesus by not taking his word seriously. They were caught off guard and they scattered like little kids when the time of testing came. Therefore, it would be the height of arrogance And the height of ignorance to think that we have no reason ever to not be on guard. Now, to be on guard is not only a defensive position, it's also an offensive position. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 42, be on your guard, same word. For you do not know which which day your Lord is coming. So this is pretty basic, right? The two great motives to to live a faithful life to Jesus is one is that Jesus died for me, right? That's that's a pretty great reason. Jesus died for me. And and the second one is that Jesus is coming back for me. So, So why should I live a faithful life? Well, he died for me and he's coming back for me. So I'm gonna be good. I'm gonna stay on mission waiting for his return. Just like he said. So this is kind of corny, but you need to hear it. I told this a long time ago, and it's probably out of everybody's memory, but it always reminds me of the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, when I was a child, we lived in a two-story house. Um, my, my mom and dad at this time, they had their own business. They would leave the house in the morning together, and they would uh, come home to the house uh, together. My bedroom was on the second floor, and my bedroom was a window which overlooked the road which my parents always took when they came home. And so every day, at least it seemed to me, I would, I would around 5.30, 6 o'clock, I'd run to my window and I would look for my dad's white Cadillac Seville, right? He was Italian, dark suit, dark glasses, white Cadillac. It's good. It's really good. And so I'd see the car and I'd see them coming and I would run downstairs. I'd hear the garage door open 
right? Stand by the door. Have you been a pretty good boy all day? And I was a pretty good boy because I knew they were coming home. And when they came home, we had a lovely meet and greet. In part because little Joey was pretty good. He was on guard. He knew his mom and dad were going to come home. Be on your guard. And when the Christian ceases to be on guard, he or she puts themselves in a perilous position. When we encounter life with the idea that we can get our ducks all in a row so that we'll never have to be on guard, we are in a perilous position. Do you not realize that in one unguarded moment, we could be like Peter and totally tank on Jesus in the public square? In one unguarded moment, a married Christian could look at another guy and look at another girl and do something which could ruin their marriage. In one unguarded moment, we could make a business decision which could wreck our reputation for the rest of our career. Therefore, please listen carefully. To be on guard is not debatable. It is essential. It is essential because I am at my weakest position when I am unaware of how weak I really am. Let me say that again. I am at my weakest position when I am unaware how weak I really am apart from Jesus Christ. And loved ones, we should be most concerned. You know, when we're walking around on our Christmas Christian pilgrimage saying, it's never going to happen to me. You know, I don't need this. I've, I've read the books. I've got everything set up, so I don't need to be on guard. I, I got this one, Jesus. No, you don't, and no, I don't. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, right? You don't need to be on guard. Be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. That's the first point. Loved ones, be on your guard. Second, Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Uh, it's actually one Greek word again. It, it's stako is the Greek word. It kind of reminds me of stucco, right? This word means to be stubborn in gospel truth. To get yourself stuck in the faith, persevering in gospel truth. In other words, be a gospel man. Be a gospel woman. If you like, saturate yourself in blessed gospel truth and live in that blessed truth's light. Okay, so what is blessed gospel truth, right? Let's, let's go through our basic points. Let's go through our paces here. What is the basic gospel? Well, I am a great sinner, but Christ is my great Savior. That's what we need to be stuck in. I am right with God only because of his grace and only because of the finished work on the cross of Jesus. I have peace with God because of God's grace and because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I am forgiven by God only because of grace and only because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I am clean before God right now. In me, not one blemish does he see. Only because of God's grace and because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so when you meet up with Mr. and Mrs. uh, Super Serious Religious Person and they come to you and you say all that good truth and they say, yeah, but, but you gotta, you tell them in the kindest ways to hold on to their butt, right? Figuratively, not literally, but figuratively. Just for a second because you're not finished. I am promised heaven only because of God's grace And because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I am promised. And this to me is remarkable. 
I am promised that in this life, Jesus Christ has such a vested interest in me that he will be shaping me and molding me into his blessed image. To be holy, this is gospel truth, to be holy just like Jesus, even though I will need his forgiveness every day. See, that's what Paul is saying. Get stuck in that. Stand firm in that. The fourth verse of when I survey survey the wondrous cross, it never gets sung, but listen to what it says. To Christ who won for sinners grace by bitter grief and anguish sore, be praised by all the ransom race, that's us if you're a Christian, forever and ever more. Stand firm in the faith. You see, what was happening in Corinth was exactly opposite. False teachers, false teachings had so gripped the congregation that the gospel truth was deluded or demoted. And the evil one loves gospel delusions and gospel demotions, right? Especially religious ones. So the evil one cannot take a genuine faith away from a Christian. But he can, and he often tries to kind of mangle the faith, obscure it. Hey, you know what? If you really want to be good with God, good with the gods, then you got to do X. And X is some kind of like hodgepodge religious concoction of duty and asceticism and, and false spirituality. Or you know the line, you really want to be serious with Jesus? Yeah, then you got to get after it and all that stuff. It's, it's very disappointing. Now the other side of that, let me just say this. Every year, at the first of the year, millions of Hindus, they, they plunge into the Ganges River in India with the intent of washing their sins away. This is their gospel. Let me quote now from an online edition of the Daily Telegraph. There are six auspicious bathing days decided by the alignment of stars. Sounds impressive. When the Hindu devout bathe to wash away their sins and free themselves from the cycle of death and, and rebirth. And have you ever seen this? This is very moving in a lot of places. I mean, the people are serious. This is their pilgrimage. And I'm sure they are well-meaning. But it means nothing. It means nothing. In our context, it's, it's not so much that you, you can't have Jesus. It's just that he can't be the only one. Right? So there's got to be other ones other than Jesus. So they say to us, come on, Christians, just say we're right. Jesus is fine, but there's, there's just more. But the Christian takes their stand in that kind of pluralistic society and says, no, Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven. Jesus is God and Jesus is it, period. So Paul tells us to stand firm in this faith. And let's just be advised. We cannot stand firm in a political gospel because there is none. And we can't stand firm in our own version of the gospel because that would mean that it's not the gospel that we believe in, but ourselves. And we can't stand firm in a kind of moralistic, conservative-only gospel because then you would make it appear seemingly, at least outwardly, that you got things so together that you don't really need a gospel. It's everybody else that needs a gospel, not us because we're moral and we're conservative. So, so it's imperative then that we understand the true gospel and we understand why we need the true gospel and we hold to gospel doctrine, right? So those who hold to the doctrine are those who will be firm in the faith and they will know enough 
to stand firm against the foe. Now let me ask you this. What would you say to a person who says to you, you know, the issues of Christian doctrine are so divisive. And if we could just focus on Christian love, I mean, if we could just focus on the love, then everybody would be united. So we put away all this doctrine stuff, and and then everybody will be fine on the basis of love. Now, if you find yourself not bothered by that statement, then you have a ways to go. Because the answer to that statement is something like this. My dear sir, my dear ma'am, the basis of our unity is a person. This person taught things. He said, this is right. And this is wrong. And that he was the only one who actually was truth. In fact, he said, John 18, 37, everyone on the side of truth listens to him. And he said that his death would be our only hope in life and in death. So we do not set aside him. And we do not set aside his doctrine. Or we do not set aside his death and his resurrection, but we unite on the basis of him, and we unite on the basis of his doctrine, and his death, and his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do it, as we'll see later on, we do it in love. Paul will tell Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the gospel. You people can't stand firm in the gospel if they get some concoction of a gospel, Timothy. Guard the gospel. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Two Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15.1. I'm going to remind you of the gospel, Paul says, that I preach to you in which you have taken your stand. Jude, verse 3. One chapter is Jude. I urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Okay, you get the rhythm? Guard it. Take your stand in it. Uh, contend for the gospel. Do you see the uh, repetition and the rhythm of these warnings? Why do these warnings come? Because it is so easy... For us not to stand firm in the faith. We can be so easily moved. Number one, be on your guard. Number two, stand firm in the faith. Thirdly, you see it there, verse 13, middle part, be men of courage. So Paul had already told the Corinthians in in, uh, chapter 3 that when he talked to them, He couldn't talk to them as mature people. He had to talk to them as babies. In fact, he essentially had to feed you bottles. Okay, why bottles? Well, Paul says it. You guys are so worldly still. You pursue the world. And the things which are passing away mean so much to you. And since you always seem to be jealous of others and you always seem to be quarreling amongst yourselves since you're always grumpy and you're never satisfied, nothing's ever right, Paul would say, and you can read this for homework, Are you not worldly? Are you not being a little baby? Of course you are. You're not thinking gospel. You're thinking personal. So as he says in verse 13b, essentially grow up. You guys got to grow up. Would you like to see if you have a teenager, would you like to see your teenager sucking on a bottle? I wouldn't. Would you like to see your teenager in the cute little dress shoes, the short little white socks and a bow tie and shorts and a sport coat? I mean, that's weird. That's weird. Paul says, listen carefully. I want you to grow up. I want you to be able to have full meals. I want your digestive system to work correctly so that you can grow up. Grow up. Now, if your Bible's open, you can see that Paul actually says, be men of courage. Some translations say, play the man. And again, it's one word in Greek. It's masculine. 
It's masculine because although Paul is talking to the women in the church and the young people in the church and the men in the church, he's basically using men as an example. Men are supposed to be courageous. They're supposed to be people of courage. And courage, by the way, is not the absence of fear. That's silly. But even when we have the fear, courage says we press on. And so Paul was saying, have this dimension in your life. Be a person of courage. Have, have courage like a man should. Play the man is what some translations say. Now, it's easy to play the coward, isn't it? It is so easy to make a whole host of excuses of why we can be cowardly in the things of Jesus Christ. We are threatened by danger, challenged by some heavy responsibility. We, we come face to face with a need that is, a, is massive and there is a massive need for us to sacrifice something in our life. We come face to face with our emptiness, our weakness. And therefore, in all that, we are tempted to be cowardly. And we can make every excuse in the world and then we begin to love our lives too much instead of behaving courageously. So we need help, don't we? We need lots of help. I can give you at least three places where we can get that help. Number one is the point here. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Stand firm in the one, Jesus Christ. And another thing is how could anyone, how could anyone wake up every morning and not call out to Jesus Christ for mercy and help? How does that happen? And how does people can go so long without the word read, the word preached, the word in groups together? How does that happen? Probably one of the best examples of courage is Joshua. Remember the story? Some of you know it. I'll just get the high points. Moses had, had led God's people for 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't easy. They were a complaining bunch. But Moses was dead now. And the responsibility had fallen on Joshua. And Joshua knew how difficult God's people had been. He knew that they were never satisfied. They were always complaining about Moses. He himself was one of the 12 scouts who did that kind of reconnaissance mission on the land that God had said, this is your land. I promise you this land. And so Joshua heard the voices of the 10 guys. We, we can't do this. It's too hard. The people are too big. The city's too fortified. We, we can't do this. He, Joshua had heard all that. So Joshua knew already how rebellious God's people were, and Joshua knew himself. So how could he be the one? I mean, we're talking about Moses. How could I be the one to replace Moses? Moses couldn't even get him into the promised land. How am I going to do it? But God speaks to Joshua in his weakness. You know this, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Okay, here's why. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, loved ones, please listen carefully. This is good news. The central truth is that our Lord Jesus Christ, for the Christian, is actually with us wherever we go, and that, and that alone, is to be the basis of, of our courage, right? What else could be? Okay, so I got physical strength. It's going to go away. Intellectually, I'm pretty. No, that's going to go away too. I got gobs of money. No, it's going to be gone. Health, gone. So what else could be the basis of our courage? 
And this to me is terrific encouragement. Because we we need great courage as Christians, especially in the age that we live in. I mean, how are we going to swim against the current of the world without courage? How are we going to refuse to to value what the world values without Christian courage? How will we not build a life that doesn't conform to the crowds? Courage to resist ungodly pressure. Courage to stand truth that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Courage to be all things to all people so that we actually might win some. Courage to preach and speak of Christ crucified. No matter where we are. And no matter who we are in front of. Courage. Grow up. It's a constant prayer for me, for this congregation. Oh, Father, reduce the gap between the proclamation of your word and the application of your word, beginning with myself. Fourth imperative, be strong. This is good news. It's in the passive, which means Paul is literally saying, be strengthened. In other words, listen carefully. If we're going to be strong, something has to be done first for us and then to us. Because we are not the source of this strength which Paul calls us to. Because the biblical witness is so plain. We cannot be strong. God's way in ourselves. We can only be strong, Ephesians 6.10, in the Lord. We can only be strong in the grace, there it is again, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.1. Therefore, the person who thinks they are strong in themselves or thinks, you know, I need some special training and if I get the special training, then I can be strong. Or the person who's prepared to use God's strength for personal power, for personal use, They will not be able to absorb Paul's imperative here. So we acknowledge our weakness before God. This is J.I. Packer, right? The weaker we are, the harder we lean. And the harder we lean on Christ, the more power which comes. So when we humble ourselves before God, when we begin to lay our weaknesses bare, then what we can expect is, is his strength, God's strength. Now, let me ask you a question. I hope you answer yes. Do you need God's strength this morning? Do you need God's strength this morning? Oh, no, no. You know, let me say, I don't, because I've got all my ducks in a row. I've got to read all the books, Christian books, and everything's in a row. Dollars are good. Health is good. Family's good. Everything's good. Plenty of stuff for years to come. Or, I'm so young now, I get straight, come on, I'm locked into this job, it's not going anywhere. This is why the preaching of the cross in the church is paramount. Because there never will be gospel strength in the church without the preaching of the cross. Because from the cross, We are given strength to walk and to think and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Strength to suffer for the gospel when called upon. Strength to actually bear fruit, gospel fruit. 
strength to say no to what is wrong and to say yes to what is right for the sake of the gospel and even, even the strength, listen carefully, to replace the good with the highest good for the sake of the gospel. If you came into Christianity only for personal peace, only for financial stability, only for personal ambition, you know, because you don't want to feel weak, right? I want to feel strong. So I want to become a Christian so I can feel strong. I don't want to know weakness. If that's you, then you will be sorely disappointed. You will be deflated and maybe even depressed. However, if you came to Christ because of your sins, because by grace you knew yourself so weak that you couldn't stop sinning and you knew that Jesus was the only one and that he had to be your substitute and your king and your friend and your strength. If that's you, then when you look to the hills and you wonder where does my strength come from, you can say with an ever increasing level of confidence, my help, my strength comes from my Lord. My Lord. Okay, why is this so? Because in God's kingdom, not man's kingdom, in God's kingdom, weakness is strength, and strength is weakness. Therein to be strong, we go in as we are weak, very weak apart from Christ. Because the strong Christian is not the strong man or woman. The strong Christian is a very weak man or woman who has been given the strength to realize how weak they are apart from Christ. Be strong, says the psalmist. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 31, 24. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength. I trust in him with all my heart. Now again, you cornered me and you said, okay, Joe, um, you're so opinionated. Tell, Tell me one thing you think is wrong with the evangelical church. Everybody wants to be strong. Everybody wants to set up their life so it's just like, Glowing strength. Wow. How did you do that? And no one wants to be weak. No one wants to put themselves in a position where they appear weak for the glory of the gospel. What was the weakest moment in history? You had a perfect, a perfect, naked, 30-year-old something man hanging on a cross for our sins. And the people were scorning. The people were mocking. Get this, get this done so we can go on with our Sabbath. (laughs) And yet, what was it? It was the most powerful moment in human history. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be people of courage. Be strong. Finally, do everything in love. Right? This makes good sense. Paul's protecting us from G.I. Joe syndrome, right? I'm going to be on guard. I'm going to stand firm in the faith. Be people of courage. Be strong. Get out of my way. You're looking to fight, let's go. I'm going to be strong, courage, let's go. And that's what Paul says, this has to be done in love. So sometimes you go into a restaurant and you hear people say, maybe you have. You say, well, I like that on the side. So there's a salad dressing, a, a sauce. I, I want that on the side. Well, loved ones, please listen. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to these basics, Paul is saying you can never have love on the side. 
Love is supposed to permeate and maintain or meridate everything. Be on your guard in love. Stand firm in the faith in love. Have courage in love. Be strong in love. This past Tuesday, and I'll close with this, an 85-year-old priest was presiding over mass in Normandy, France. He'd done that probably thousands of times. And he was forced on his knees by an Islamic fanatic, Father Jacques Hamel. The fanatic was heard to scream, all of you are infidels. We will go to paradise if we kill you, and you will go to hell. And then he proceeds to murder Father Hamel. Now listen carefully. We understand that was an act of unspeakable evil. I mean, we better understand that. But let me ask you this. Does Christ love this man? Does Christ love this man? Because you know, there was a scene that was kind of like that. There was Jesus on the cross and there were all the people and they were mocking Jesus and just telling him how horrible he was and how weak he was. And you remember Jesus' response to that? He struck them all down with lightning. Now what did Jesus say? It's classic. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if Christ does this and says this and believes this, don't you think... We should too. So this is not a love driven by a kind of a superstitious, you know, I better be nice to them. Or Jesus may not be nice to me. No, this is self-reducing love. This is basic Christian love. This is gospel love. This is a love which cannot come out of ourselves on our own. This is a love that says, there's no way I could say that. But I know I need to say it. And I, Jesus, I know you want me to say it. So I am so weak. You're going to have to give me the strength to say it and to believe it. Here endeth the lesson. Thank you for your attention this morning. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, how we give glory to your name. Because we would admit freely, at least I would admit freely, that there's been way too many times when we don't have the kind of love which Paul calls us to, which you call us to in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first, Father, we thank you for your forgiving grace, for watching over us and protecting us from our foolishness and from our lack of love. And we would pray, Father, for the glory of your name and for the good of those around us in and out of the church that we would be people on guard, that we would stand firm in the faith, that we would have courage, that we would be strong, and that we would do everything. Father, please, we would do everything in love. Now, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who believe, both now and forevermore. Amen.